you've got 10 minutes between now and your next meeting. You probably can't achieve anything with that time, so you may as well scroll through your social media or do a bit of online shopping. But stop right there, because this short window of time is actually a great opportunity for a micro habit. Most people think that if it's small, it's not worth doing. But Holly Ransom has built an enormous career by intentionally squeezing every second out of her day. Give Holly 10 minutes and she is going to do an energy audit and fill those 10 minutes with something productive. And she needs to, because for Holly, no two weeks look the same. As a writer, Fulbright scholar and CEO, Holly has delivered a peace charter to the Dalai Lama, was Sir Richard Branson's nominee for Wired Magazine's smart list of future game changers to watch, and she was also awarded the US Embassy's Eleanor Roosevelt Award for Leadership Excellence in 2019. And Holly was also the co-chair of the G20 Youth Summit in 2014, is the youngest director to have been appointed to an AFL club, and was also personally requested by Barack Obama to interview him on stage back in 2018. She's pretty impressive. So how does Holly use microhabits as a secret weapon? And how has she attracted some of the world's most successful people like Richard Branson to be her mentor? And how does Holly implement phone-free Fridays? My name is Dr. Amantha Imba. I'm an organizational psychologist and the founder of behavioral science consultancy Inventium. And this is How I Work, a show about how to help you do your best work. So let's start by hearing about how Holly goes about setting goals for herself. Oh, I love it. Love when anyone's at the point of thinking about goals. Uh, firstly, I'm so excited any time anyone talks about it because I think it, it's such a powerful tool to be able to get whatever it is that we're seeking to try and achieve. And for me, normally I go about a, an end of year uh, goal setting process. So I'll often spend some time at the end of the year, which is nice and reflective. Some people do it at the ends of uh, financial years as well, but there's um, just to reflect on whatever period I've been working to. So I'm typically doing a year and I'll think about what were the highs, what were the lows, what were the things I learnt, what are the things, if anything, I'd like to change moving forward. And so that's often, I think that reflection is a really important part of the goal setting piece because if we don't do that, it's really hard to get clear on or to have goals grounded in some sense of the context of what's just been. So after I've done that, I'll often draft up goals and I typically try to do them in a couple of different facets of my life. So I'm not just thinking about goals professionally. I think about goals in the context of relationships, my health and fitness, trying to be really well-rounded. And that's something that I certainly didn't uh, do as well 10 years ago as I've come to learn the importance of certainly nowadays. And then after I've kind of set those goals, and I typically, uh, one of the things I definitely used to do uh, is write a lot of goals. I, I'd be one of those people that would, would have like a spreadsheet. It's so embarrassing. I sort of cringe <laughs> reflecting back on it, even as I tell you this story. Um, and I've come to understand the power of having a few that you focus on and typically, you know, a handful of those stretch goals and then ones that are more kind of within sight. So I'll often have one or two things that are really pie in the sky I'm aiming for. If I manage to shoot the lights out, that might come true. And then things that are, I guess, conceivable, but are still a really great stretch result within things that I'm already working on, no one committed to. So that's my process. I then sit and reflect on them. So I typically kind of put them somewhere I, I see them. 
And that's one of the biggest things I'd stress about goal setting. It's not just the power of thinking a goal. It's taking it a step further and writing it down. It's then taking it a step further than that and putting it somewhere you see them every day. And then I think the fourth step that even cements that with more power is sharing it with people that you um, love and that you know care about you in order that they can help you stay accountable for them. So that, that framework that we wrap around our goals is actually, I think, one of the most important parts of making sure goals work for us. I'd love to hear an example of maybe one of your career goals for this year that we're in, 2021, which we all thought would be such a smooth sailing year with COVID behind (laughs) us, but no such luck. Like what's an example of a goal that you've set this year? And I'd love to know like how, how that came to be a goal. Like how did you even identify that that was something that mattered to you? Yeah, great question. So one of the things I'm working on at the moment, I've just uh, launched my first book, um, The Leading Edge, and that book is really regarding uh, a new approach, a new language, a new set of examples on leadership. So it's all about um, wanting to disrupt the way that we talk about and teach leadership and doing so through sharing these diverse stories and case studies and the toolkit of leaders who are out there being the change that they want to see in the world. And I think one of the things that's emerged from not only the process of writing that book, but then being in conversation with people like yourself, Mantha, and others who are passionate about, you know, that development, getting the best out of ourselves individually and collectively, is that there's support structures that we need to build around that because it's not just about the ideas it's how do we create the environments that support the implementation and so for me you know a a new kind of professional goal that's come out of that and I'm still in the process of kind of calibrating and seeking mentors and kind of advice on is what can I do now that that book is launched that those ideas are out in the world what's kind of the the business model and the support structures that I can help build for people that can assist with bringing these ideas to life and that can help us democratise access to leadership development. That's what I'm really passionate about. So that's a new goal at the moment that I'm working on that, that emerged effectively out of having more questions and observations at the end of the process of actually writing the book. And do you quantify your goals? Like is there a target attached to what you've just described there? Not at the moment. I mean, sometimes I find targets are really helpful. This is more embryonic at the moment in terms of the way that that's formulating up. I think maybe it's at the moment it's a purpose that's becoming a goal uh, as opposed to being something that I've got a really concrete sense of how to quantify. And I think that's a really important point. Like when, when we get taught smart goals at school, we know that it needs to be specific and measurable and attainable and all that stuff. And often that comes with being able to quantify something. Um, sometimes it's better to have, you know, a landing target. So like a, a rough area that we're aiming for, as opposed to, you know, a yes, no light switch, where if we either make the goal or we don't make the goal. So sometimes binary goals can be a little bit all or nothing. Doesn't mean you don't shoot for them, but it might means you want to have some other ones that, you know, there's a, a, you know, that whole notion of if you shoot for the moon, even if you land amongst the stars, that's a great outcome. So for me, that will be something I, I might quantify up in time. Um, and at the moment, like, for example, with the book, you know, for me, the goal was writing the book. It was not then about selling X number of copies um, because I'm a big believer in focusing your goals on what you can control. And in that instance, I can control writing the best possible book I can, doing as much work to finesse it, to ensure that it's got really rich stories. It's written in a compelling way, you know, putting it through the 
the lens and perspective of, of friends and colleagues who read it to offer their feedback and taking that on board. And then once it's out in the world, I, I cannot control how the world receives it. So I've done my best on writing the product and the goal was getting out the best possible book hand on heart I could release. Um, and now the world will do what the world wants with it. I think that's really interesting. And that's quite helpful for me. I'm I'm midway through maybe a little bit over midway through a first draft of a book that's been released in July next year. And awesome. I, yeah, and I'm trying to think about the next 12 months and certainly finish the book and submit that <laughs> on time. Well, they feel like huge goals, don't they? Like even in of itself. I know, absolutely. But then it's interesting because I was thinking ahead to mid next year and going, well, what's my goal like when it comes to selling the book and promoting the book um, through my publisher and it's interesting. So how have you then thought about that in terms of going, okay, well, this is in my control, this is not in my control, but you obviously want the book to have impact, otherwise you wouldn't have written it. So how, how do you then conceptualise goals around that? One of my goals has been about how do I get, um, like I'm quite focused now on how do I get the community that are sort of already because these these juggernauts that come with with publishing books, they'll and you'll um, know this all too well. But it sort of it does a lot of the I guess marketing for you. And I think to some degree, people then see that and they self identify as that being a sort of content or topic that they want to engage with, or they don't. Um, and you hope that to be as broad a field as it possibly can be. But I think my goal is then around how do I try and meet those people who are finding the material and wanting to engage and help them take the ideas forward. So one of the things um, that we, we've shared uh, the day the book re- released is we're turning the book into an interactive challenge that people who are reading it can sign up to start on September 1. And so a lot of my work at the moment is actually going into taking the content and building it into a model where people can start to experiment and play with the ideas. And so my goal is now can I get a small percentage of that population who are reading the book to come on the journey of trying to implement the book. Um, and so that's that's where my thinking is moved to and my focus area is moved to. And I think the other one is just, I mean, it, and it sounds trite to say it, but I'm sure you'll feel this about your material too. Every time you get an email or a bit of feedback, and I've been lucky in the handful of days it's been out for a couple of people have already generously taken the time to do this. Every time you get an email or a note from someone saying, oh my gosh, this really impacted me, or um, I just wanted to tell you how much reading this particular chapter has really, you know, given me ideas that have challenged the way I'm thinking about the way I'm leading or the business I'm running or whatever it is, it, it truly emotionally impacts you. And that is why you want the, this book out in the world in the hope that one person is able to uh, further empower what they're doing by virtue of something that you've shared and, and written about. So the goal for me is uh, is helping it to find those people, but then also helping, um, I think, mo- mobilise the learning that's in the book into this kind of active community and supporting them on their learning journey because they're the people that are hungry to go and do the work. They're buying the book. They're resonating with the ideas. Um, and that's where my goals are focused at the moment. Mm, I like that way of framing it. And and I'm curious, like with the with the emails that you receive from people that your work is having an impact on, like I can definitely relate to that. And I, I get a lot of feedback, particularly from listeners of the podcast, but I feel like I'm very quick to just go, oh, that's so lovely. Um, archive. Uh, and <laughs> like, what, what do you do with those notes? Do you do anything with them or sit and reflect on them for a while? What's your approach? It's an interesting comment uh, to, to think about more broadly, like in terms of just uh, how we take stock of 
those moments um, because I, I think particularly in the busyness of the world as it is right now, it's really easy to your point there to kind of not come up for air and just keep powering through. I think they always uh, impact me like in the moment of reading and particularly those that are really specific or where the nature of what someone's written is is obviously really heartfelt and really considered, not just hey, great read or something like that. Don't get me wrong, that's so wonderful to hear too. But I think particularly (laughs) those where someone has really engaged or it's very clear that an idea or a story has really profoundly had an impact or or shaped them and that's very clear in the way they write the note, I find them particularly powerful and, and, uh, you know, putting them in that folder that is kind of not only something that you can go back to as a reminder but also in those moments where, you know, it all gets a bit hard or you're feeling like maybe there's more naysayers than there are supporters. You know, we all have those moments, right, where we're we're challenged or feeling overwhelmed or not quite sure how it's all going to come together next. Um, I think I use them in those moments. I'm a words person, so one of the things we talk about in in the book is this concept of love languages, and so I am one of those people where um, of the five, definitely words uh, mean the most to me of anything. So it is really significant to me just in in general sense. I know that's not true for everyone who are maybe more about acts of service or gifts or other love languages, Um, but so it does definitely have an impact and I think they are something I find myself coming back to as a a way of taking stock and sort of, I guess, re-energising in those moments where I'm feeling a little bit flat or a little bit challenged. So do you file those notes somewhere so you can dip into? Yeah. Like, you do. Okay, right. That's that's super cool. It reminds me I had Professor Scott Sunshine on the show quite a while ago. He, he co-wrote Joy at Work with Marie Kondo, uh, the person that helped many people clean Very up their cool. homes. Yes. Um, and he talked about having a Spark Joy folder literally on his desktop. So he would you know, put like, you know, positive feedback from uh, like journal papers that have been reviewed, um, you know, nice feedback from students, those sorts of things. So it would be this folder and it would be ever-changing. He'd update it quite regularly that he would just go to when he wanted to feel a little bit of joy in his life. Like, yeah, what what do you do with this folder? I assume it's a digital folder or? No, it's interesting because, I mean, I'm saying this and and I should have, you know, said it probably in answer to your first question, but it's probably that example that just made me think about it. You know, I'm sitting talking to you from my office and I've got a little window in my office and along the windowsill is a row of cards from really important people in my life that have, you know, messages of support and encouragement that mean a lot to me. And, and every time I look at the card, I know who it's from. And, you know, there is probably a couple of times a week where I end up inadvertently reading one or two of them or, or intentionally going and picking it up. And on my desk looking at me every day is a letter from my partner. Um, that just means the world to me. Uh, in, and so that's something that I read every day in terms of taking stock and reminding me why I do what I do. So um, they're physical in the way that they impact my environment as much as they are, you know, in that folder in my email or, you know, um, on the desktop for that matter, um, in that I can go back to them as a, as a broader archive as well. So it's a little bit of both. I actually hadn't thought about the physical piece, but I'm looking around my office going, oh, I've set it up that way too. <laughs> that is that is super cool. That's so funny. It, it's actually, it's the opposite of something I did many years ago when I was, uh, I think I was like 22 or 23 and I was um, in the middle of my 
PhD and procrastinating. I love how casually you just roll that out. 22, 23, doing my PhD. (laughs) I know, that's 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 a bit of a humble brag, isn't it? My God, but no, it's just because like I was, um, you know, not uh, not socially cool enough to take a gap year and go traveling. Um, I was just a study (laughs) nerd. Uh, But but I was also like I was working as a musician at the time and trying to get a record deal uh, as it's a really good way to procrastinate from writing a, you know, 80,000 word thesis. Um, And so I, I remember I had this goal where I wrote to a bunch of record labels and sent off my demo and I had this goal that uh, I would want to cover this particular wall in my bedroom in rejection letters before I could even hope to get an acceptance of a record deal. Uh, So kind of the opposite, like a rejection wall. Like almost a red rag to the bull though, like in the sense of sort of, you know, keeping stock of like everyone, like that's a little, you know, you read stories and, you know, obviously the famous one is J.K. Rowling, but I was reading one about the, uh, I think it was the producer or the writer who wrote the TV show Pose, which has just finished four seasons where it took 129 no's to get a yes for anyone to read the screenplay and think about making it. So. I can see the motivational factor of like if I just keep at it. And there's something to be said for that, right? Like that whole notion that 90% of life is just showing up. Like if you just keep at it consistently um, and if that's a motivational force, which I think for a lot of people it is, that idea of I'm going to prove you wrong, we'll see how you feel when I one day get the yes. Uh, yeah, I, I see the power of that for sure. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I also see the power of actually putting positive things around as well. <laughs> um, anyway, now I know that mentors, uh, you've mentioned mentors and I know that they have played such a pivotal role in, in your Massively. life, in your career. Yeah, and I want to know, like, how do you start those mentor relationships? How have they started for you? I always feel like this topic needs a disclaimer, right? Because when we use the word mentor, like I feel like so many people have this baggage associated with that word because it either, it, like it immediately takes us to a really formal notion of what a mentor is or we all remember that one time it, at some point in our life, often in a company where we took our first job or something, we got matched in that you know, internal mentoring program and (laughs) someone just jammed you together with someone else and, like, that was meant to work. And and I think that's why we've often got to reclaim what mentoring is and kind of strip it back and go, just don't even think about it like that or you'll probably never start. Um, (laughs) But you're right when it comes to kind of the the biggest uh, contributions to my growth and development, like, absolutely, you know, people who've been willing to give up their time and share from their life lessons have been, uh, like, just absolutely fundamental to that. So for me, it always starts from uh, a place of seeking learning, not seeking mentoring, which I think is helpful because it lowers the barrier to entry and it takes some of the pressure off both sides. All you're asking for originally is half an hour or maybe an hour of someone's time. And I think it's so important that you know why you're asking for it and that you can articulate that to someone. I've got people that I would love to meet, but I still don't have questions worthy of their time. And I won't ask for their time until I've got good enough questions. So I think that's really important for people listening. Like don't go scattergun. Don't just reach out to everyone and anyone saying, hey, I'd love you to be my mentor. Think about what am I working on, you know, relative to what we were talking about earlier. What are my goals? What are the gaps maybe in the part of the how I'm going to achieve my goals that I still don't understand? Who can I go and talk to that might be able to help me knit this plan together or maybe that I deeply admire because they've gone and done what I kind of want to do and maybe if I could sit down and, and learn from them about how they did it, I could help, you know, create the plan for how I go about making my idea or my impact happen as well. So go and seek that learning and it's in that conversation if you've got the right dynamic that I think there's the opportunity to extend it. And what I mean by that is 
you kind of leave those conversations. You go, oh my gosh, I barely scratched the surface with this person. Like I have 90 more questions I want to ask them. I can't believe the time has passed already. And you feel this level of connection where they're not patronizing you. Uh, There's an openness to sharing. So they're prepared to be quite candid and honest. Um, where you turn around and go, geez, I'd really get benefit out of a longer or an ongoing conversation with this person. And I think in that moment there's the opportunity to go, hey, if um, would it be possible if after I've taken all the advice that you've given me today and applied it, if I circle back to you with some more questions or if I came back and asked for a bit more advice or help? Um, so that, that would be the way I'd approach it. Think about learning first and then make sure you've got the right dynamic And it's also very okay if someone says no. You don't want someone saying yes that then doesn't have the time to be available for you when you need it. So don't be worried about that. You will find those people, but start by focusing on frequently having learning conversations. Hello there. We will be back very soon with Holly hearing about how she makes that initial request for a conversation really stand out given that she's reaching out to incredibly busy and high profile people. And we'll also hear about why and how Holly does energy audits of herself. Now, if you're enjoying uh, how I work, you might enjoy something else that I do. So every two weeks I uh, send write and send a newsletter about three things that I'm loving. So they might be gadgets and software or pieces of research that I've come across or other things that I'm really loving. So if you would like to receive that in your inbox every couple of weeks, go to howiwork.co, that's howiwork.co and pop your email in and you'll get something in your inbox shortly. I want to know, though, like how do you make that initial kind of request stand out? Because I imagine that like you're someone that's probably inundated with people approaching you to be a mentor. So how do you think about it in the reverse when you're reaching out to someone to make them kind of take notice? I guess there's two things. I mean, uh, I definitely do a lot of reach outs where I don't know people. And so it's a cold reach out, Um, but it always helps if someone can make the reach out for you. So if you know someone, and this is where tools like LinkedIn are really handy and you can work out how you're a couple of degrees removed from someone, if someone can make that introduction for you, then it does become a lot easier to at least open a conversation up with that person. I think the second thing I'm always conscious of is I'm very prepared to wait. I know that a lot of the people that I'm reaching out to have extraordinarily busy schedules. And so I'm more than happy to make a time that is six months from now or to come back in a few months after they've finished a busy work period or writing period or a project's finished and say, hey, just me again, wondering if you might have time available now. So I also think it's really important to be respectful of the diary of the person that you're reaching out to. And the hustle is absolutely on you to do it politely and appropriately, but there's no expectation of them doing the follow-up. You need to be the one that if you're serious about it, you you know, you won't drop off the radar in three months. You'll be back saying, hey, um, you know, hope you don't mind me. Just wanted to see how you're going and whether there's um, an opportunity to get something in the diary in the next month. Now, Micro breaks and micro habits. I know this is something that you you think about. Can you talk to me first about micro breaks, what you're doing there to, to manage your energy during the day? Yeah, I've been obsessed for a long time with this idea of managing energy, not managing time. And at, at a basic level, I think that starts for people with the idea of doing an energy audit and actually seeing 
you know, in a day-to-day, in a week-to-week, what is it that energizes you? What is it that drains you? And also just being conscious of your body's natural rhythm. Some of us are naturally morning people. Other of us are absolutely night owls. And then thinking about how you match activity to energy. So you want to be doing your creative activities or um, things that really require the best of you at times where you're high energy. You want to be thinking about things that don't require that much energy, maybe getting through all those rapid replies to emails and putting that at points of the day where you don't necessarily have as much energy because you probably don't need as much. And then on top of that, there's sort of this really encouraging area of science that's sort of saying we have actually the, the profound ability through very small interventions to make massive changes to our energy. Um, and so one of the people I interviewed in my book, Dr. Jamie King, is one of the pioneers of this space in Australia, really looking at, because well, I think sometimes the reason we don't manage energy or the reason it's sometimes hard for us to think about this is we always think it has to be big to be significant. If I can't go to the gym for an hour, it's not worth doing. If I can't meditate for 20 minutes and get zen, it's not worth doing. Whereas a lot of the science now is saying actually you can stop and you can take 10 proper deep breaths and you will see a physiological change. You can get up and you can go for a walk, even just around the floor of the building, go around the block of the house um, and you will see a physiological change. You'll, you can jump up and down on the spot you know, and do jumping jacks and you'll see a change. So for me, some of the things I've been starting to you know, factor into my days is just how do I take some smaller breaks like that? So I absolutely get up multiple times a day and go for a walk around the block. And I'll do it when I feel myself hitting an energy low. And it's an intervention that takes all of five minutes and I come back more energized and ready to go. Can you talk about like, how do you do an energy audit? And like, what are some other changes that you've made to like how you structure your day and when you do certain tasks? An energy audit for me is as simple as get a notebook um, and and have a page where you just write some bullet points of things, being curious about your energy and what you observe. So I know naturally I um, I'm a really I'm very much high energy in the morning. I absolutely hit a wall in the kind of mid to late afternoon. I'm just a no go between about like three thirty and five or three and five. Like it's a really dead zone for me. And then I have this incredible burst of energy in kind of the mid evening again as well. And so it's changed the way that I think about structuring my days because, for example, I try to make sure I never get up and get straight on email. And that was something I learned from, you know, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, you know, that learning that difference between urgent and important and making sure that the urgent doesn't take the place of the important. So when I get up and I've got energy to go, I want to be putting into things that are important. They're going to be stuff that are to do with my goals that are going to help me step towards things that really matter to me. They're things that I've got to put a lot of thought into. Maybe it's a proposal for a new idea. Maybe it's thinking through how I could uh, structure up a collaboration with someone I'm really excited about working with. But it's not going to be sitting through my emails or it's not going to be choosing to audit my expenses or something like that. You know, They're going to be things, I know I have to do them, absolutely, but I'm going to try and do them at points in the day where I've got a natural kind of energy low or I'm, I'm not needing as much of kind of the, the energy I bring to bear on other topics or need to bring to bear on other topics. I think the other thing I've noticed is, you know, and this is true of what we've learned for some time about attention spans and stuff like that. Like I do see that I'm at the end of 90 minutes often needing just a little bit of a perk up and a reboot. So that's where I've started inserting these micro breaks whether it is as simple as I'm going to do 10 jump squats, like literally in the room I'm still in just to re-energize and shake my body awake. 
Sometimes if it's been a particularly, you know, intense like um, cerebral meeting or I'm just feeling a little bit drained mentally, I'll sit there and I'll do 10 deep breaths, um, you know, wear one of those Apple watches where it can do them for you or it can guide you through them in terms of the, the ease of doing that. So just finding those little ways of intervening in those moments because all of us have got things in the day that do drain us. We can't avoid any of that. It's about how we strategize and put these things around that so that we can uh, re-energize ourselves um, and come out of those lows. And we don't need Red Bulls and, you know, uh, the the 3.30-itis snacks and things like that to do it because often all we're doing there is is kind of numbing a sensation our body's trying to tell us and using kind of an artificial way of kind of pushing through it. So thinking about how to actually start to be the energy for ourselves, it's just been a really profound way that I've shifted managing my uh, day and week in the last six years probably and I couldn't be more happy with the results and I couldn't be a bigger believer in, in this idea. Now, when I think of you, Holly, I'm like it's, it's hard to imagine you having these low energy periods because I feel like you're such a high energy, high achieving person. But what do you do to switch off or relax? Do you have rituals or practices around that? Yeah, definitely. And it's something I have uh, historically, like I say, this is something that I've I've learned in my more recent history. So the last five or so years, it's definitely not something I was all that good at in my sort of early 20s. Um, so it's been a, a learned habit and something I've come to understand that if you don't look after yourself and you don't like, pro- like really properly recharge that productive downtime where you're actually allowing yourself to restore, you're very hard to do anything at any kind of intensity for any serious length of time. Um, and I guess as well, the stats on what we see about burnout probably suggest a lot of us are struggling with the same thing. Um, you know, for me, switching off, uh, I've become a lot better at it and I, I think it's the, the great intervention of my partner. We're really good about not letting work blur into the evenings and really safeguarding our weekends. Um, and I think that's been really good, the discipline and the accountability we give each other in that. It doesn't mean every now and again something urgently pops up, sure, but on the whole, weekends are weekends. Weekends are quality time. They're for friends. They're for being active there for getting out and being, you know, part of whether it's sport or cultural events, we, we try and make sure that they're time out so that when we start Monday again, we're really hitting the ground running with the energy that we need for that week ahead. I think one of the other things we've been playing with this year that I've found really beneficial is um, phone-free Friday nights, um, which sounds so silly, but that idea of the discipline of switching off from a week, putting the phone down at five o'clock and not turning it on till Saturday morning and just that absence of notification, that ability to properly switch off because the work week isn't continuing to linger into your Friday night and then, you know, spill over into the weekend. I've just really enjoyed that complete disconnect from tech. Uh, you know, it's only for what, what it would it be, I guess, 18 hours or something like that that we really turn it off for. But it's that's been fantastic. So I, I encourage people to find little ways of putting tech breaks in too because we've just found that to be really beneficial and you just realise how how connected you are to the thing the rest of the time. So that ability to properly disconnect uh, has been a great one. So it's nice that you've got someone to keep you accountable. I I, I like that idea. And, And like, what are you doing with tech? Like, are you literally shutting it down and locking it away? Or how, how do you resist the temptation to just go, Oh, 
oh, I really wouldn't mind just taking a quick check of email or something like that. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we it's um, we allow ourselves to, to watch TV because that can be part of, you know, Friday night zone out, but we don't use laptops or phones or anything like that. So for me, I just put it on aeroplane mode, turn it off and, you know, put it, put it or put it on its um, charger in, in a different room. So I put it downstairs in the house, disconnected from it. Honestly, it's one of those funny things too. I actually have found, and it's a really interesting thing to be curious about with yourself, for people who are up for trying this, I actually find it quite a relief. I'm quite happy to turn it off on a Friday night so I don't ever feel this compulsion to go, oh, I might want to check that. I think I'm like, oh, thank gosh, I get to... I get the excuse almost, or I have the discipline of having to put that away because I've made a commitment to myself and my partner that that's what we're doing. So it's an interesting one as well because I think sometimes we don't actually realise how much of a great joy or just kind of freedom it is to to be disconnected um, for a period of time. Um, I mean, Amanda, I know you've, you've come to space, like, you know, that whole community and that intentional idea of, you know, disconnecting in order to connect is really quite powerful. And we don't often have space for it. I mean, how many of us sit in meetings during, you know, uh, the week where, um, and, and now it's all happening on Zoom, but even on Zoom, you're watching people clearly writing emails while they're in a Zoom meeting or oh, they're on their phone yes. texting <laughs> and they're not actually present in anything. We're so connected. We're pulled in every different way. And I don't think many of us have actually experienced for some time the joy that it is to be fully present because it's so hard. Our world is geared for us not to be now without our intentional discipline to do it another way. So true. Gosh, I was on a Zoom call this morning with three other people and it's just so frustrating and obvious when people are not focused on the meeting and they're doing something else. What do you do in those situations out of interest? Do you call people on it or like what do you do? It's interesting. Like one of the things I I had not paid all that much attention to until I went back to school to do my master's two years ago, where there was a really big culture around setting group norms, was I hadn't actually thought about how important it is to set the uh, the norms, so I guess the, the rules of the group up front because just because, it you know, when you start seeing that behaviour, uh, people aren't really sure necessarily where the line of acceptability is and if you haven't actually clarified that it's not okay for people to sit on email or to be inattentive or to turn their camera off when they want to go eat lunch or something like that, you know, it becomes really hard to create a sense of group culture and, and you'd be so much better placed with your work to, to talk about this than me. But I think one of the really powerful things I've come to realise is certainly, you know, every time you shift context and, you know, in the instance of all of us being thrust online and being stuck in this virtual space, it's so important to create rules and also to explore what that looks like for people because if we're going to say, okay, you can't be um, turning your camera off to go and, you know, get yourself lunch, well, it's so important that we understand that not everyone can sit through five hours on Zoom nonstop. So we've got to have rules about how long different bits of content go or how regularly we take little breaks so people can re-energise and go have a comfort break or whatever they need. Now, speaking of group settings, something that has always impressed me about you, Holly, is just how kind of like effortless you are it seems effortless when I see you at events talking to people having meaningful conversations like you just seem so confident and you know what to say and I want to know like what what's going through your head like what do you feel you do differently from other people in those kind of event and conference sort of situations well thank you firstly that's very generous um I I don't know that I do anything all that differently. I think I'm always interested when people come together and and we get the good fortune to be at some really interesting events with with different conferences and things that we speak at. 
it's such an incredible learning opportunity. You, you know, you're so often, I, I feel this all the time, like so lucky to be in the room, be it virtual or in person, uh, with people that just have these really interesting areas of study and application. And I always, I think, just come from this disposition of curiosity. Like I'm, I'm always eager to understand what people are working on, um, why they pitch the work that they do. And so I think I always just see it as like what a smorgasbord. You know, I get this opportunity to go and connect and, and ask questions. So I, I think it comes from that framing. I think so much of life is about how we frame things to ourselves and the story that we tell ourselves. And I always tell myself the story of what incredible opportunity to be curious and to learn. And that's the way that I try and approach those events. And I think when you come from that disposition, I guess, you know, your question was sort of talking about confidence. And I guess the only connection I can draw to that idea of confidence is because you're coming from a place of curiosity, you're not coming from a place of comparison. I think it's interesting because I feel like so many people are inwardly focused in terms of their self-talk at events and, you know, conferences and things like that and worried about what other people think. But I like what you've described in terms of it's very external or other focus, which I feel is a great way just to remove the nerves. Yeah. And I remember once when I did an improv class, the instructor said, nerves are selfish. And I was like, oof, that's like a really hard to wrap your head around idea when, at, you know, certainly at that point in my life, I, you know, got nervous quite a bit, or there's certainly a lot of environments I get nervous in. And, and his point was that when we are nervous, we are focused on ourselves. When we're actually focused on who we're delivering for or who we're showing up for. And having tried and applied this thought quite actively for many years now, I can see what he means. When we're focused on who we're serving and who we're trying to, yeah, show up for, be there for, it really does change the nervous pace. Like I've, I've found that is far less a part of my day. And when I do see myself getting nervous, I've in some way started to think about myself again. I have a couple of other questions for you, Holly. Now, I know that you are a voracious reader. I'd love to know, like, what have been two or three books that have had the biggest influence on how you think about work and career? Work and career, okay. Uh, I think definitely one I already mentioned, Stephen Covey, it's a classic, but Seven Habits is is just a, a a foundational book that I think everyone should read. I really have enjoyed from a leadership standpoint, there's an amazing, uh, she, she does the US presidents, but the, the way that she writes about them, I think she's the best sort of uh, leadership biographer out there. Actually, there's maybe two of them, Walter Isaacson, who wrote a brilliant one on Da Vinci, that's worth reading. And then Doris Kearns Goodwin, um, her book on leadership, where she chronicles the lives of four different presidents through four different periods is is brilliant. And all, as are a, a number of her individual ones. So I think for those who want a kind of historical read on leadership and to think deeply about people like Lincoln and like, uh, that's a really good one. The other one that I've really enjoyed, and it's top of mind probably because it's the one I read most recently, is uh, Untamed by Glennon Doyle. Um, Really different to the books I've just described previously, but very interesting in its vulnerability and she has such a powerful way with language. She has a, a kind of delicious turn of phrase with the way she writes. It's such an easy read. But it's also just so about that idea of letting go of the shackles of what other people might tell you to be, want you to be, and that notion of really um, stepping out after yourself. And I think for anyone in particular who's listening that might be at a decision point or an inflection point in their life and thinking about what's next, it's a really powerful book uh, through the her own personal journey that provides some really interesting fodder for kind of personal reflection. So that, that's probably a third. 
Now, my final question for you, Holly, for people that want to consume more of what you're doing and get their hands on a copy of The Leading Edge, your new book, what is the best way for people to do that? Well, yeah, thank you. I mean, you can get a copy of The Leading Edge, probably Booktopia is your best bet or Amazon or you can check out bookstores too, but certainly uh, I imagine people listening this through a device, so that might be easiest. And then if you want to connect, I'd love, you know, to reach out on any social media platform. Um, I'm on all of them. And also you can subscribe on my website, um, hollyransom.com. We've got two newsletters we send out twice a week. One, Love Mondays, which is like a positive way of punctuating your Monday mornings, just a three-minute short, sharp read to help you energize for the week and then easy tiger on a Friday to kind of change up the way that we uh, use our weekends and think about what productive downtime can mean. So we'd love for you to sign up to those as well and be a part of the, uh, an ongoing conversation. Amazing. Holly, I'm so glad we finally got to have this chat. You have not disappointed. You're just like so full of interesting ideas and energy. I personally got so much out of it. So thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate everything that you're doing with this podcast and in your world of work too. And it was awesome to finally get to have this chat and I look forward to um, connecting in person sometime soon. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you got some useful stuff out of my chat with Holly. I know I definitely did. She's just such a powerhouse. Now, if you are not currently a subscriber to How I Work, you might want to hit subscribe or follow wherever you're listening to this from because next week I have Jamila Rizvi on the show whose work I've been a fan of for a long time and we're going to be talking about how you can become more resilient when times are tough. How I Work is produced by Inventium with production support from Deadset Studios. The producer for this episode was Jenna Coda. And thank you to Martin Imber, who does the audio mix for everything to do with How I Work and makes everything sound awesome. See you next time.